Titus chapter 3. We're only going to get to the first two verses, but let's read verses uh, 1 through 10. No, 1 through 8. Hear the word of God. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that, having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Amen. Father God, we approach your word. It is our desire to handle it carefully, to revere your word, and Father, to obey it. I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully speak your word. And uh, empower us, Father, to live it out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we finally got to a new section. Uh, chapter 1 dealt with the church. Chapter 2 with the home. Now we're getting in what it means to live out there in the world. And there are, uh, was a big temptation in the early church, especially in the uh, first and second century, to try to escape from the world, go out into the wilderness because they felt we don't want to be defiled by that world. And you might have that tendency as well. You might have the feeling, you know, it'd be a whole lot easier to be a Christian if we didn't have to be in this world, you know, if I didn't have to mess with that ornery boss or if I didn't have these associates who are constantly trying to get me down. But the scripture affirms over and over that even though we're not of the world, we're in the world and we are expected to transform this world. Uh, uh, we're not just to escape from it, nor are we to be conformed to the world, but our duty is to transform it. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to be, I think that's all it's going to take, uh, three weeks, we're going to be looking at Paul's call to live as godly citizens. Now next week we'll look at the motives that drive us, but today I just want to focus on the, on the call. Verses 1 through 2, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Now this was a passage that was used by the King of England to retort to the Puritans who came for, uh, to him for relief and they said, you know, this is tyranny, you've gone way beyond what the scripture allows, can't you give some relief to these laws? And he responded, and especially the defenders, the theological defenders of the king responded that, uh, no way, the king's word is law. There is no such thing as tyranny. Uh, the king stands for God. And to try to emphasize how radical that was, they said, uh, look at what he was uh, 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 talking, what context he was talking in. By the time Titus was written, Nero had already begun his persecution of the Christian church 
And yet Paul still says that you need to roll over. They didn't say that, roll over, but they said you need to obey and submit to the government no matter how bad the government may be. And the first thing I want to do is to show how this interpretation violates the context that's been given already in chapter 2, and it violates the very context of who wrote this book. It was jailbird Paul, right? In chapter 2, what was going on is that Paul was saying, as citizens, we are responsible, no matter what your station in life, of living out the blueprints of God, and those blueprints have social ramifications. Take a look at chapter 2 and verse 11, just to review a little bit. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And we saw that it's not all without exception, but it is all without distinction. This means that it came to and it transformed and it's been conquering magistrates and citizens, the rich and the poor, male and female, Jew and Gentile, and as it conquers those people in whatever stations of life it finds them, they are responsible to live in terms of the laws of God. And so verse 12 goes on, and it says, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Uh, verse 14, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Notice how comprehensive that is from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And so it's very clear that Paul wanted these Cretan believers to be living out the biblical blueprints and uh, not just to have them stored in their head and no matter what station of life that they were in, to do it by God's grace, according to his law and for his glory. And if we're redeemed from every lawless deed, that means that every law of the Old Testament, all of the moral law, continued to be applying. Now, the second context that the king of England ignored was that Paul was a jailbird. He disobeyed several, you know, state mandates that you weren't supposed to go out preaching unless you got a license. And uh, he disobeyed state mandates of travel permits for these people. In fact, every one of the apostles... Uh, were treated by Rome as being criminals, as well as by the, uh, the Jews. And we'll be looking at that a little bit more later on. But uh, Paul was in and out of jail. And so verses 1 through 2 are obviously not intended to say, okay, Christians, you're just to be doormats. And whatever the government says, just go along with it. Instead, what he's wanting them to do is to transform every level of society. And he's saying, you're not going to be effective unless you have these traits in your life. If you're going to be the opposition in some sense and wanting to transform society, you're going to be taken a lot more seriously if you're a loyal opposition instead of a disloyal opposition. You're going to be much more difficult to persecute if um, you are uh, bringing your, your changes, you're seeking to transform, but you're doing it out of a sense of graciousness rather than out of a sense of being angry and bitter at society. Uh, he's saying you're going to be far more effective in bringing your transforming blueprints that the Lord wants us to bring, if, uh, and we're going to be much harder to dismiss if um, uh, we have a submissive rather than a, a very, um, what would be the opposite of uh, submissiveness, a very, um, you know, 
pugnacious attitude, you know, toward, uh, toward the government. Now, in some people's minds, it's hard to reconcile those, but we're going to try to do that this morning. And the first thing I want to point out is that it would have been a whole lot harder for that first century Christian to obey these first two verses than it would be for us here in America. And it's a whole lot more difficult for people who are living in Sudan or who are living in China to obey these two verses than it is for us here in America, but I, I still want us to try to identify uh, with them. By, by the time Titus was written, Nero had already begun a three-year persecution of the Christians. Now, we need to distinguish that from the three-and-a-half, actually it's a seven-year war, but it's divided up into two three-and-a-half-year segments. This actually started before Rome's war against Jerusalem, and interestingly, for those first two years of the persecution, the Jews went right along with the Romans, they cooperated, they gave intelligence, they were bedfellows with the Romans, and so they were being harassed by the Romans, they were being harassed by the Jews, they were being treated as being, you know, unloyal citizens, as being uh, the, the, the scum of the earth. And uh, uh, here are some of the things that, that, that they said made them the worst of citizens. Nero blamed them for, bl uh, for burning down Rome. Um, there was all kinds of uh, 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 criticisms, such as they're called subversives, treasonous rebels, uh, falsely accused of practicing cannibalism in the church. And then when uh, we get to verse 13, we're going to be seeing why it was that Paul sent Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos, who was uh, skilled in Jewish law, because their case did not look very good in any of the courts in the Mediterranean region. We're going to be seeing there was a reason why they needed these, uh, these um, uh, two lawyers. Now, with that as a background, I think you'll see these are incredibly revolutionary words to be speaking to these people. Incredibly revolutionary. He wasn't dealing with a semi-benign government. He was dealing with a government that had many misconceptions about... Uh, about Christians, and the first misconception was that they were subversives, that had burned down Rome, were out to overthrow the government, and so in that first phrase, Paul wants the Christians to do everything in their power to make that first accusation seem like a ridiculous accusation. He says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. Now, actually, some of the Roman historians knew exactly what was going on. Tacitus, for example, said, that uh, it was actually Nero who burnt down Rome. And the reason he did it, it was so smelly and dingy and winding streets, and he wanted to have this grand, you know, city that just looked spectacular. And so he ordered it to be burned down, and he actually hired gangs of thugs uh, to keep people from dousing the flames with water. Well, it was starting to come back to bite him, and the citizens were really upset because they were suspecting that Nero was behind this and it looked like there might be rebellion on his hands. And so he quickly said, well, it's the, the, the Christians. This is a terrible thing. And that propaganda began spreading uh, all, throughout the, all throughout the empire. So here's some of the descriptions that the Roman leaders gave of Christians. Quote, haters of the human race, unquote. And you look at what the Christians did, and you think, man, how in the world could they come up with an accusation like that? Haters of the human race. Juvenal said that they belonged to the sewage of the Orontes. Suetonius said, quote, they are a race of men given to a novel and baneful superstition. Tac Tacitus says they are notorious for their depravity. 
And so Nero's propaganda was working rather well. They had the reputation of being insubordinate subversives who are haters of the human race. Now, what's the only way that you're going to be able to convince people otherwise? Well, it's if your life is so obviously in submission to the government and so obviously loving and so obviously gracious to the citizens that are all around you that these citizens, you know, kind of scratch their heads and wonder, where in the world did these accusations come from? It's not the Christians I know. What's going on here? This is what Paul is trying to get at. He's trying to counteract the false slander by love, and there are seven qualities to this, uh, this, these actions that he's advocating that are the exact opposite of the seven qualities of the unbelievers in verse 3. And so there's a contrast that he's setting up here. Now just imagine that you are one of those magistrates who's hauled a Christian into your court, and you're trying to figure out, you know, what exactly are these guys doing that's wrong, and as you're examining these people, what kind of citizen would you want in your government? I mean, it's hard to be a governor because you're always having to deal with people who are causing trouble and whatnot. Let me read these two descriptions here, and you ask yourself, which of these as a magistrate would you rather have as citizens in your kingdom? It says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once, and so now he's going to describe what they were as unbelievers, so he's contrasting these Christian citizens with the non-Christian citizens. We ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. I think it'd be pretty obvious, even if you are motivated to persecute these people, these are model citizens. You know, do I really want to be persecuting these and praising the ones who are after my head and who are after my throne? Uh, this is what Paul wants this contrast to be very vividly displayed. And let's start, first of all, as we look at these, with what it does not mean. And that'll help us to have a clearer perspective of what it does. Paul's admonition did not mean, okay, every time the government says something, we need to go belly up and uh, be doormats and do whatever they say, because we need to keep in mind, this is the same Paul who said of himself in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, he said, in stripes above measure. How many times had peop, uh, Paul been beaten by the Romans? He says, man, I can't even count. I can count the number of times I've been beaten by Jews. But it's above measure. I've lost track of how many times I've been beaten. In prisons more frequently. He was not just a one-time prisoner. Now, man, this guy was a, a pretty regular guest in the, uh, you know, the county and the state prisons and even in the national, I mean, the federal, the empire prison under Nero. Previous to writing this, he had gotten out of prison. But after he's finished writing this, he ends up getting caught again and he gets executed. He gets beheaded by Nero. Anyway, he goes on, he says, in deaths often, uh, whether this is how many times he's been sentenced to death or whether we know at least one time in, it was recorded that he was um, brought back to life, but it, either the sentences to death were often or there were times where he was actually killed. He says, in deaths often, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And so if either a Jewish or a Roman magistrate had Paul uh, before them in the court and they looked at their record, 
They say, man, these guys are hardened criminals. Now they weren't, but that's what it might look like to them as many times as they had tangled with the law. 25 years earlier, Paul acted as a sort of Brother Andrew uh, working undercover in Damascus. Now, Brother Andrew, you know, he smuggled Bibles into various countries. That's illegal. And a lot of Christians criticized him. You can't do illegal things. Well, almost everything they did in the early uh, first, what, three centuries was illegal, you know, when they were preaching the gospel. They weren't supposed to. Um, in Acts 14, 19 through 20, Paul's stoned, dragged outside the city, is dead. God brings him back to life. He goes right back into that city. Uh, he's not necessarily one to run away from trouble. In Acts 16, after being beaten and imprisoned by the local authorities, uh, he says, you know, is it really lawful for you to have beaten me? That's interesting. He didn't do it while he was being beaten. Uh, he did it afterwards. I think there was a, a reason for that. And they're scared to death when they find out that they've beaten a Roman citizen because it could be their heads. Uh, Romans were exempted from it until after the trial. And so what they're trying to do is quietly sweep all of this under the carpet and say, okay, just get out of here, you know, please don't tell anybody. And they refuse to do it. Here's what Paul says. No, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison, and does it say they left the city? No, it says they entered the house of Lydia, Acts 16, 37 through 40. And because of Paul and Silas's kind of tough stand, the church actually was relatively untouched by persecution for a period of time in that place. Six years before he wrote Titus, Paul successfully defended himself before uh, local authorities, Jewish authorities, and Romans authorities. That's Acts 21 through 24. And in each case, because of his resistance, the preaching of the gospel was enabled to go forward, but he always did it with loyalty and with submission. And people might say, now, wait a minute, those don't fit. How can you be doing that with loyalty and submission? And yet all of these examples where they're disobeying the government. He says here, be subject to rulers and authorities, but he's not saying it is a wimp. He is saying it as a person who really had to make some tough, tough calls, some tough decisions. And so what Paul is doing in verses 1 through 2 is he is giving a strategy that Christians need to follow if they're going to have a powerful impact uh, in society. Uh, uh, when the going gets tough, when we're dealing with authorities, it's very easy for us to go to one of two extremes. We can focus on all of the passages which speak of civil disobedience, which is sometimes mandated, and uh, then we become combative, arrogant, unsubmissive, and subversive in our attitude. Now, other people, they go to the other extreme, they look at the passages which speak about submission, and what ends up happening is they just don't know when it's time to do the civil disobedience, and so they compromise on the areas that God says you cannot compromise on. And Paul is saying, okay, here's how we have uh, the balance. It's going to go a lot worse for you when the government is trying to persecute you if you have the characteristics that verse 3 talks about that you used to have when we were, you were an unbelieving citizen. It's going to go a lot worse for you then than it will if you have the characteristics that verses 1 through 2 are talking about. He says, remind them. Why would they need reminding? 
Well, we need reminding because after you've been beat up a few times, it's very easy for us to get bitter, get angry, and begin then to attack in a way that's not going to be conducive. We constantly need to remind ourselves when we get frustrated, you know, that our agendas are not getting through in, in uh, um, you know, Congress or in the state legislature or city hall or wherever it may be. And then the other question might be, why is he saying submit yourself to Nero when according to scriptural definitions, Nero deserves to be overthrown? In fact, if there are godly magistrates, they probably ought to overthrow Nero. Well, the reason he says it is they're not magistrates, right? They're citizens. And the reform principle is that even though magistrates may overthrow a government or fight to protect their citizens, and that's what the American War for Independence was. It was a lawful war. It was not a revolution. Whereas if citizens just say, I'm just fed up with this, I'm going to take up arms, and there is no magistrate that's called them to arms, that's revolution. And Paul says, no, I don't want anything to do with anarchy. <clears throat> and so here's Paul's basic line. Just because the governors are non-Christians, just because they do quite a number of bad things, just because they may have 20 bad laws on the books or 30 or 60 bad laws or 100 bad laws, does not give you permission to now go out and be unsubmissive to the 400 good laws that are on the books. Okay, do you see the distinction there? Uh, he says we need to have an attitude that's quite willing to submit, the desires to submit, uh, rather than being rebellious, grumbling, and uh, reluctant to submit. It's not going to be a good testimony for Christ if we do that. Here's the issue. Our obedience needs to be principled and our disobedience needs to be principled. The Bible needs to define both. I want you to turn with me because this is a really important point that sometimes people get imbalanced on. I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. And Peter's audience is undergoing exactly the same persecution that Titus is going through, so it's the same context. And this uh, gives a few more details, much the same language, but a few more details. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. <clears throat> he says... Yeah, it does say something. Chapter 2, not chapter 3. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Um, uh, then take a look at verse 19. He indicates there may be times when you must disobey for the Lord's sake. When we obey for the Lord's sake, he's not saying every obedience to no matter what law is there is going to be automatically for the Lord's sake. He says, no, your obedience must be for the Lord's sake, and there are some obediences that are not for the Lord's sake. So down in verse 19, he gives an example of that where we can disobey for the Lord's sake. He says, for this is commendable if because of conscience towards God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. So there's wrongful suffering. Why? Because there's wrongful loss sometimes. Uh, verse 13, back up there again. Whether the king is supreme or is to governors, is to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evil doers. So it's a context of good laws. 
and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So there's the purpose. We want people to not have misinformed ideas of what Christianity is about. In fact, we want unbelievers to come to Christ. Uh, We don't want people to be able to legitimately say anything malicious about Christianity. He goes on, he says, as free, so our consciences are not bound by man's laws, they're bound by the laws of God. Uh, They're free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as servants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And I think that's exactly what Paul is getting at with Titus. Uh, Back to uh, Titus uh, chapter 2 again. Even the phrase that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Titus has said that a number of times in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. That the word of God may not be blasphemed. He says, that's the reason I want women to be a testimony to this world of what it means to be godly. He says exactly the same thing about men in verse 8. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent, and they had plenty of opponents, may be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you. And so one of the goals that's uppermost in Paul's mind is he wants to conquer the slander through love, winning pagans to Christ. Look at verse 10. Paul wants slaves to have the same testimony, that they may adorn or beautify the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. So here's my question. Evaluate your own life and ask yourself, does my walk in the world beautify, does it adorn the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, or does it make Christianity look ugly to the unbeliever? Is our life a testimony of submission or of, of uh, you know, being uh, constantly pugnacious, you know, against the government? What kind of a testimony uh, do we have when we're interacting with unbelievers? Do they see us as parasites or as people who are really supporters and uh, a boon to society, submissive or antagonistic. Uh, When you go to the city chambers, you know, the city councilmen want to walk down a different aisle when they see you coming because they're scared to death of what you're going to say. I think Christians have got a reputation that the only times we talk to politicians is when we criticize them. Uh, we, we never write to them to praise them for the things that they are doing good when those letters probably would be far more effective in, in helping them to continue to do those good things because many of these politicians are very discouraged and they finally just shut off the criticism and they don't want to read it at all. <clears throat> Paul says in Romans 12, verse 21, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And by the way, that's a fantastic chapter for uh, showing all of the different ways in which we can overcome evil with good. And it's a good that's a very active good. Titus 3.1 ends by saying to be ready for every good work. When an earthquake hit a city, and there were a lot of earthquakes in those years leading up to 70 AD, when an earthquake hit a city, who were the first people to be on hand? It was Christians. They were right there, clearing the rubble, burying the dead, bringing food to people. They were a testimony that they were not haters of the human race. No, they had the interests of other people uh, right there in their minds. Um, Take a look down at verse 14. Let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. And I think Paul's 
point was we want them to be fruitful. We want them to win people to Christ. Uh, one of the most fruitful periods of growth in, in the church were the first three centuries of church history when it seemed like there was nonstop one calamity after another, earthquakes, destructive storms, plagues, wars, famines. And they were involved right there, showing to the whole world a testimony that uh, could not be... Uh, could not be questioned. And I, I, this is one of the reasons I'm very grateful that the PCA has uh, begun very aggressively being involved in disaster relief. Henry Chadwick, who's a very famous church historian, said this of the first three centuries, the practical application of charity was probably the most potent single cause of Christian success. And then he lists several types of charities. He says, care for the poor, for widows and orphans, and visits to brethren in prison, or condemned to the living death of labor in the mines, and social action in time of calamity like famine, earthquake, pestilence, and war. He speaks of them burying the dead. He speaks of them going into the prison. And yes, they've been ministering to believers, but then they start ministering to some of these unbelievers that are in that prison as well. This is the kind of thing that the church has backed away from and said, oh, that's a government job. Let the government take care of it. And the church is beginning to wake up, and they're beginning to bring back some of these things that God has said that we ought to do. Anyway, Paul goes on to say, to speak evil of no one. Now, he's not saying you can't be honest about what a politician holds to. I think Paul stood in the tradition of John the Baptist and pointing out the evils of magistrates. You can see several examples of that. Uh, just the evil there is, um, you could say, don't say evil things, but actually... The translation in the New American Standard and the NIV, I think, is a little bit more correct. It says, malign no one, or NIV, slander no one. And let me tell you, the temptation to slander is so strong, even here in America. We're not even persecuted when you get into these political uh, election cycles. Uh, some of the things that are said about the opposition, they put them in the worst possible light, and we can do that as Christians, and then they minimize any good that they do, and they put themselves in the best possible light. Some of the ads that are out there are nothing short of slanderous, and it does not put Christians in a good light when we oppose the Democrats or anybody else that's out there, and we go overboard and we exaggerate how bad uh, people may be. And so that's, I think, what he's getting at. And he goes on, and he says we should go even further, be peaceable or uncontentious. We shouldn't be people who love to have a fight. Uh, the next word goes even further. We are to be gentle or genial. You know, the, the normal reaction when we're persecuted is to get our hair on the back of our neck up, right? And to just go into combat mode. And he says, no, don't strike back. Be gentle. Uh, have a, a genial disposition. You know, one of the reasons why Ronald Reagan was so well-liked was even when he disagreed with people, he did it with such a, a genial, you know, gracious demeanor that even his enemies said that they just, they wanted to hate him, but they had a hard time hating him. You know, they just could not help but love him. I think this is what Paul's saying every one of us ought to be. Have the kind of demeanor that Ronald Reagan had when you disagree uh, uh, with the world. So gentle or genial. And then it says, showing all humility to all men. Now, showing some humility to some men is not so hard, is it? And uh, showing all humility to some people is not so hard, Showing some humility to all people may be a little tougher, but showing all humility to all men, man, that takes a work of God's grace because there are some people, frankly, are tough to live with. <laughs> They're tough to live with. But Paul says, look, 
I'm not asking you to do what unbelievers can do. I'm asking you to go to the cross of Christ and receive His grace, His supernatural grace, that can enable you to live this kind of supernatural walk. And we really need to do this if we're going to have an impact on society. One of the things that led the prison guards to Christ during the imprisonment and the tortures of Richard Wormbrandt uh, was the fervent love and the prayers that he had for his tormentors, his peaceable, humble attitudes. He had a conquering love. Now, sometimes he refused to do what they said he, he ought to do. He didn't always go along with what they said he should do, but he always tried to do it in a submissive and a gracious way. And some of the guards said they finally just could not take it. They broke. They were conquered by God's love, and they became Christians. Uh, Christ's statement on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, led to the salvation of at least one Roman uh, centurion that was at the cross there. You look at Stephen, when he was being stoned, he says, Father, well, how did he do that? Um, he says, do not lay this charge or this sin against them. Something to that effect. You'll have to look that, uh, look that up. Now, that face that he had that looked like an angel, he couldn't achieve that on his own. But his walk with God was so strong and the presence of God's Spirit in his life was so powerful that it overflowed in this direction. And you know what it did? It brought a conviction like a cattle goad into Paul's life. And uh, later on, Christ alludes to that. And he says, Saul, Saul, you know, you can't kick against those, uh, you can't keep kicking against those goats, those uh, the, the, the pricking, you know, that they got the cattle going. And uh, that's what was happening, I think. It was conviction in his life as he saw what, what, um, I can't even think of his name, Stephen, um, uh, went through. Was it Stephen? Yeah, it was Stephen, uh, what he went through. And so you never know who's going to be looking, what kind of effect or impact your words, your demeanor, the graciousness in which you respond to people is going to have on people down the road. But what we're to do in everything, whether it's in the, uh, in the church, in the home, or in society, we are to reflect the grace of God, the law of God. We're to do it to the glory of God. And it should be our desire to not only transform our lives, but to transform the society that is out there. And the rest of this chapter spells that out in greater detail. But I want us to just go to prayer right now and just ask the Lord to forgive us for those times where we've been jerks and uh, been offensive to the government and ask him to help us not to back off. That's the way some people do. They say, okay, I don't want to be ungracious and so I'm not going to say anything. No, we need to say things. We need to change things. But to do it in a way that would be effective. Let's pray. Father God, we do come to you and ask for your forgiveness for those times that we have failed to honor the king, where we have reviled the king in contradiction to your Old Testament law. Uh, forgive us, Father, for those times where when we have interacted with uh, unbelievers who are maybe in some way authorities over us, we've done it in such a pugnacious way. It's just gotten their back up. Forgive us, Father. Help us to, uh, to, to, to change and to resist and to seek to transform the society that is out there in a way where these people uh, see Christians as indispensable. They see Christians as being for them and not against them. And, uh, uh, Father, only your spirit can enable us to do this in an effective way. We tend to go to extremes, but I pray that you'd help us neither to back off nor to do it in an ungodly way. Help us to have these seven characteristics in our lives in rich measure. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.